All right, let's turn to Daniel chapter 5 today. We're in a series on living your faith in difficult circumstances. And it could be all kinds of circumstances in life. I think that the church is going through a difficult time right now because of the changes in our culture, the changes in our world, and that challenges us. And I think it always has challenged the church to try to figure out how to be faithful and yet live in the culture. So Daniel chapter 5, remember we're talking about Daniel and his friends and how they were in a different culture than they grew up in, how they were taken away and 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 set down in this culture called Babylon, radically different than anything they'd ever known before. And yet there was their God right there with them. And he's right here with us no matter what we're going through in life. God's with us. If you belong to him by faith in Jesus Christ, God is with you. And if you haven't made that choice yet, God wants you to because he wants to be with you in the middle of your life circumstances as well. Daniel chapter 5, beginning verse 1. It says that King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles and drank wine. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold and the gold count goblets and taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, they drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened, his knees knocked together, his legs gave out. The king called out for the enchanters, the astrologers, diviners to be brought in and said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Do not be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This Daniel, who the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. And he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wisest men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing, tell me what it means. You'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded 
and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High, the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your lives and your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And this is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then at Belzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we look at your word, we're listening for your voice speaking to us. And we pray, Father, that you would guide and direct us and use us the same way that you did with Daniel. Father, you gave him wisdom and insight. And Father, today we need wisdom and insight from you as well. And we need to be close to you, Father. We need to be in your presence, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we need to be walking with you. Father, we pray that you would speak to us and teach us how we can be like Daniel, how we can be your people today in this culture that is so very foreign to your things, so very opposite to what you believe and teach and what you've said is truth. So we pray for you to help us there, Father. Help us to stand up as your people, not in arrogance or pride, but simply in faith. Boldly standing up for what we believe about you and not following the culture, but instead listening for your voice. I pray today, Father, as I speak, that you would give me clarity of speech, that the heat would not, would not affect us in such a way that it interferes with our hearts and our hearing of you. That, Father, we would worship you through your word and your spirit in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I think I'm only 57 and a half, only... Not quite 58, but I think we're living in the most tumultuous times in all of history. I've read a lot of history, and I enjoy reading world history and American history. Uh, I love to read about a long time ago. I, I like to read about ancient worlds, uh, cultures. And I believe that we are living in one of the most tumultuous moments in all of history. What our nation, what our world is beginning to go through, what it's experiencing right now, is a radical change in belief. We're going. We're changing the the cult. The, think of the world, the culture of the world as a ship, and our ship is shifting. It's changing course. And here in America, we're changing course with it. We're following along in our thinking, in our cultural thinking, in our living, in our beliefs. But this is not the first time the church has faced a cultural shift, a change, a great change. The church has experienced great changes throughout its history. Mark Knoll, in his book called uh, Turning Points, the, the decide, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity, he notes 
11 changing points in history where the church was impacted in a great way, in a very uncomfortable way. One of them was the Reformation, where how the Reformation came about out of this idea that the Christians ought to be the priesthood of the believer. That you and I don't need a priest to go to God. We can go to God directly ourselves. That God has given the church pastors, yes, and deacons, yes, and, and leadership, but we go to God individually because we are the priesthood of believers. So Peter talks about that, that we're a royal nation, a holy priesthood. All of us are. A great turning point. Another one was when the Gutenberg printing press was, was first uh, invented and, and, and began to pump out Bibles and began to make uh, Bibles readily available. Did you know there was a time in history when it was illegal to own a Bible? Did you know that in Europe? It was illegal. They would actually chain the Bible to the pulpit for two reasons. One, because... They didn't want everybody getting it because one is very expensive to have a Bible. It was very uh, Bibles were very expensive to they hand they hand uh, recorded out. They 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 hand wrote out each Bible. Each copy was made by hand, and they're very very beautiful, very very expensive. But also they wanted the priests of the church to tell the people what the Word of God was, what it said, what it meant. They didn't want you to study the Bible at home on your own. They wanted you to be in church to hear what the priest said. The Reformation changed all that. The Gutenberg Press changed all that too as well. The difference between those other historical moments where the church thrived, even in the great radical change and stress, is the world is moving this change. The world is driving the change we're seeing today. And the world is affecting the church like it has never affected the church before. And whether you're looking at the changes we're going through today and you see opportunities uh, to be missionaries, even here in Lawrence, Kansas, to people from all over the world, think about that. People from all over the world come to Lawrence, Kansas, to go to university. That's a great, that's a great thing. We can be missionaries right here. So it's an opportunity there for sure. Or you feel uncomfortable. You don't like what the culture is doing. It goes against your faith and what you believe. And you feel out of place. Well, there's changes going on. And they're different and they're radical. And it's a difficult time. And change is never easy, is it? Major change is never really easy for anybody. We are a lot like Daniel and his friends. While most of us were born in America, for many Christians it doesn't feel like the America that we were born in, does it? That's because it isn't anymore. It isn't the same America. It's changed. In the last 10, 15 years, America has radically changed. It's no longer the America that you and I knew 20 years ago. Daniel and his friends grew up. They were born and grew up in Israel. That was their culture. And the changes they went through took them a thousand miles away to a radically different culture called Babylon. How'd that happen? Well, Israel lost its war with Babylon. It had gone to war. It had been attacked by King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was power hungry. And he loved to conquest other, conquer other nations. He wanted to conquest. And so they lost their war with Babylon and experienced a change far more radical than what we're going through. I'll tell you what, you want to know what changed. Let your country be conquered by another country, and you'll see great changes. Uh, I was not alive during World War II, but um, I wonder what happened, what it was like living in Germany after World War II. Think of the radical change they went through being a conquered people. We've seen, though, from the book of Daniel so far that Daniel and his friends, they did pretty well in Babylon. They did pretty well. They were accepted into the culture. They held high positions as advisors in the government but they also maintained their faith in God. They kept their faith in God, and this is what God expects from us today. 
He expects us to, to do well in the culture, to live in the culture, but maintain our faith in Him, to keep trusting in Him, looking to Him. We have to find a way to live in the culture around us today as radically different as it is without compromising our faith in God. So when we have to choose, when we have to choose to either follow the culture around us and what it's doing or follow God, what, do we, what should we do? We better follow God. And we've got to teach our, our kids and grandkids these truths as well. After Nebuchadnezzar died, here at Daniel chapter 5, it calls him uh, Belshazzar's father. Actually, he was his grandfather. Sometimes in the Bible, a grandfather was called a father if he was more prominent than his son. So his grandson was always considered his son. That's how that's kind of worked out. There's not, a, there's not an error here in that sense. It's just that historically speaking, Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. After he died, after Nebuchadnezzar died, Belshazzar became the king of the Babylon Empire. He took on the reins of a worldwide empire, a massive uh, nation, empire, different nations, different groups. And when that happened, when Belshazzar became the king, Daniel and his friends had to choose once again. They were faced with another decision to follow the culture or to follow God. Point number one on your outline, if you have your bulletin on the back is your outline. Point number one, the King Belshazzar offended God. We see that right away, don't we? The Bible doesn't take very long to get into this. When people mess up with God, when they offend God, God makes sure we understand that they did. Look at verse 1 and 5, 1 to 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king's and the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly the fingers of the human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. The king offended God. Belshazzar is a great warning against drinking alcohol. I mean, he really is. If you look at, look at his life right here, he's a great warning against drinking alcohol. He, he could, he's certainly a warning against getting drunk. He most certainly is that. When he drank, when Belshazzar drank, he ended up offending God. He thought it was funny to misuse the things of God. He thought it was fun to mock God and mock the things of God and use them for callous things. Alcohol can lead a person to do that. Alcohol leads a person for, to coarse behavior, crude jokes, taking God's name in vain, misusing the things of God that, that he determines is important. This often happens when people give in to drinking and get drunk. But Belshazzar wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't an Israelite. He, he, was, he didn't worship the Most High God. He was a pagan. He was a Babylonian. He didn't worship God. He worshipped other gods. He worshipped the gods made of silver and stone and gold. He worshipped the moon god. He worshipped gods that didn't exist because that was his culture. You know, this week is, uh, this is what, the second week of college football, right? KU's won two games already. Isn't that awesome? They're doing better than last year. K-State's won two games. The NFL's already started. And guess what's happening all around our country? People are flocking, flocking to football stadiums. 
And what are they doing? They're drinking beer. They're enjoying a game. They're enjoying friends. And many of them are getting drunk. And they're worshiping other gods. They might not say it that way. They're not thinking of it that way. But they're worshiping other gods. They look to these football players, these fabulous athletes with great skill. And it's sad to say they hardly know much of anything else other than to play this game. They have a hard time interacting in the world outside of the game. And yet they are almost gods to so many people. He was like that. Belshazzar was like that. He didn't worship God. He worshiped gods that didn't exist, gods that didn't speak, gods that couldn't see, gods that couldn't do anything. That was his culture, and that is what's becoming of our culture as well. Our culture is beginning to, to worship more and more the things of this world. Belshazzar also thought he was godlike. And this happens with people as well. In his culture, people of power often thought that if they got their way, they were godlike. They thought they could, no, no one could touch them when they were that far up the, the chain, when they were at that position of power. People like this think they know better. They think they are untouchable. And they think they're convinced that they're godlike in a way. The Bible warns us against this kind of thinking to be careful about how we think of ourselves in this culture that we live in. In Ezekiel 28, verse 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel, son of man, says the ruler, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. There are people today who truly think they are smarter than God. They're more educated than God because they don't believe in Him. And they say, why would you believe in this fairy tale? Why would you believe in this God who comes from these pages? It's just a book. And that's the way Belshazzar was. That was his culture. And that's becoming our culture today. And when that mysterious hand began writing on the wall, I wonder, I wonder what had happened at that very moment when that hand first appeared and the fingers began to write. Well, Belshazzar noticed, didn't he? He noticed right away, and he realized right away he had offended God. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, his face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. It means he fell out. He just flat fell down. Let me ask you, friends, wouldn't that happen, would that happen to you? Would you do that? I would. If God right now put his hand up here and he began to write, I'd probably pass right out. You don't have to go home. First, you have to get off your face, right? Yeah. Our culture refused to listen to what God says. It refused to listen to what the Bible teaches about God. And this means the people of God have got to be like Daniel and his friends. We must choose to follow God regardless of what happens in our culture today. You see, in every culture, no matter where you live, no matter where you come from, in every culture, the people of God have got to be the people of God. It's just the way it is. Because there's nobody else going to do it. We've got to be the people of God. Amen? Amen. Please don't fall asleep on me now. Get that fan blowing. All right. Point number two, you see, in the culture where we're at, we've got to be the people of God. Daniel was known to be a man of God. I like Daniel, Do you? don't you? He's encouraging to me. I like him. The next thing Belshazzar does was he was to call, was to call in his wisest men, his best advisors to interpret that writing on the wall. This is so much like the culture. Let's get the most educated people we can find to come down here and tell us what's going on. That's what our culture always does. Never turns to God, never turns to the people of God. 
Verse 7. The king called out to the, for the enchanters and astrologers and diviners to be brought in and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads these, this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. They failed, didn't they? These educated men, in spite of all their education, all their degrees, these wise and worldly men couldn't figure out what God had written on the wall. Verse 9, look at it. Verse 9, so King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. I mean, it's just getting worse. The stress is building on this man. Have you ever had an anxiety attack? Anybody ever have an anxiety attack? It's kind of like that, I think. I think it's just this overwhelming sense of just fear and anxiety is coming over him and he just can't, can't deal with it. This is a reminder, to me at least, that without the Holy Spirit, we can't understand the things of God. That's, what's, that's the deal with our culture. The culture doesn't have the Holy Spirit. You can't get the Holy Spirit out of, an, out of a textbook, can you? No. You can hear the Holy Spirit out of the pages of the Bible because that's the way God set it up. That's the way God arranged things. But you don't get the Holy Spirit out of degrees. You get the Holy Spirit from knowing God, having a relationship with God. Following God, not through your education. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul's not bragging here. And neither are we when we say, You don't understand these things if you don't have the Spirit of God. This is just the simple truth. So if you want to know what God wants you to know, if you want to know how to deal with life, you're going to have to have the Spirit of God with you. And the only way to have the Spirit of God in you and with you is to be, is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's just the simple truth. But you know, even then, even in that dark culture, there was somebody. There was somebody there who could help. Someone God had put there for this very purpose, this very reason, this very moment. Look at verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. King, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, Daniel whom the king called Belteshazzar was found to have king mind, knowledge, and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. I love this, don't you? Here is this mass confusion. The king in charge of this entire empire is radically overcome. He's in, a, in an episode of anxiety. He doesn't know what to do. And his grandmother says, call in Daniel. Call in the man of God. God puts his people in places, sometimes difficult places, for his purposes. To make something good come out of something bad. And the Bible is just full of these examples. Think of Noah. Think of what God put Noah down into. Noah grew up in a culture of absolute wickedness. It was so wicked, he went, God decided he was going to destroy everything, every, every living thing on earth except for Noah and his family. In Genesis 6, verse 12, 
God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Noah lived, the Bible says that he was a preacher of righteousness in the New Testament, that he was a preacher in living in this very corrupt culture of his time. That was so corrupt, God decided he was going to wipe them all out and start over. And through Noah, God saved mankind. And that's something. Noah probably thought, man, I am suffering. Because I'm not like anybody else, and they all hate me, and I don't fit in. And they don't like my kids. That's okay. They don't like hardly anybody's kids these days, right? Nobody seems to like kids. What's the deal with that? But you know what? God saved mankind through Noah. What about a woman named Esther? Esther was also a captive, a Hebrew. She was taken into Babylon. And her people were threatened. And she was a concubine or a candidate to be a queen or something like that. And her uncle Mordecai found out about a threat to the people, to the Jewish people. And he asked her, he got word to her and said, go to the king, go tell him who you are and what you are and tell him what's happening. Tell him the danger that Haman presents to his empire. And she goes, if I go to the king and he doesn't call me in, he'll kill me. And Mordecai says, no, you got to go. You got to go. This is why you're here. You got to go. And Esther 4.14, he said to her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Mordecai said, Esther, God will raise somebody up. Somebody is going to save the people. But if, but you and your family, your father's family will perish, and who knows. But you've come to a royal position for such a time as this. God put that woman in that royal house to save her people. She thought she was going to suffer. She thought she was going through something very difficult and struggling. But God put her there in a difficult circumstance to save his people. What about another young girl? A young girl, just a teenager. Virgin, not married, pledged to be married, but not married, named Mary. Remember her? We're going to be talking about her story in a few more months, not very far away. God used her, a young girl. In her culture, for a young girl to be pregnant without a husband was the worst thing. It would be, could get her killed. But Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5 tells us that when the time had fully come, God sent a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Aren't you glad that Mary was there? There Mary made herself available in that difficult circumstance to God's hand and God's purpose so that you and I could stand in his house on Sunday, September 8, 2019, and praise and worship him. Aren't you glad of that? Amen. Amen. Sometimes God puts his people in difficult circumstances because he wants to bring about something good, something great out of something bad. Let God use you. Let him use the difficult circumstances that you go through sometime in your life. Let him use them for his good purposes. Something good can come out of it. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to what? His purposes. That's right. That's right. So, point number three, look at point number three. Daniel was taken to the king because Daniel knew God. And the queen had already said that. She said it in her own language of her own culture, but she acknowledged something different about 
Daniel, after Belshazzar listened to what the, the queen had to say, he sent for Daniel. And what does Belshazzar begin to do right I'm sorry, Belshazzar. What does he begin to do to Daniel when Daniel walks in? He begins to compliment him. He said he heard Daniel was special. Look with me at verse 13. It says in verse 13, So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. He begins to, to compliment him. He begins to flatter him. Because he has heard this is a very special man. And then he says the wisest men of his kingdom, the, the greatest educated men of his kingdom, were unable to decipher what God had written on that plastered wall in his palace. But if Daniel could, but Daniel, if you can, you'll be greatly rewarded. The world loves to do that. It loves to offer trinkets, golden things, things that sparkle, things that shine. And over time, they tarnish and lose their value. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, now I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing, tell me what it means. You'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He said, you'll be clothed in purple. I'll give you clothes from my own rack, my own closet. We'll give you some of those. He said he'd give him a, a gold chain. We're going to give you this solid gold chain. You can wear it around your neck. It'll make you feel really good. You'll, you'll feel really important wearing these clothes and this chain. And then he said, look, I'm even going to make you the third highest ruler in my empire. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to allow you to do all kinds of things, things you never could have dreamed of, and you'll get to do these things. What did Daniel do? Daniel rejected the king's gifts. Daniel said no to the king. Can you imagine that? Verse 17, then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Isn't that amazing? Daniel wasn't there for the king. He wasn't there for the Babylonian empire or the culture. He was there because of God. He wasn't interested in what the king had to offer him. He was interested in what God wanted him to do. Friends, I don't know if you'll ever be in this kind of a position, but something like this could happen to you. It might just be your neighbor or a family member or a friend or a co-worker. And they don't know what to do. They don't know how to get the answer to their life's problems. And they talk to you and you tell them, I'll pray for you. And you begin to pray for that person. And God begins to give you some wisdom about well, they, maybe they can get help here, or maybe I can do this, and maybe maybe God wants them to do this. And you begin to share with them the things that God lays on your heart, things that you take seriously from God, and you ask Him about and make and ask Him to confirm for you. Someday you might be in a difficult circumstance, not to be punished, but to be God's person to someone else, to be used by God for some purpose other than suffering. And we look at life's difficulties as suffering, don't we? That's kind of what I thought this morning when I came in. The AC wasn't working. I've got to do something so that people don't suffer from the heat in this building. Guess what? I couldn't do a doggone thing. I went out and I changed the fuses. Didn't do a bit of good. I looked at the breakers. They were fine. Didn't do any good. Turns out it was just something that the power company's just going to have to deal with, a blasted uh, transformer. I can't fix that, folks. Sorry. If I could have, I would have. 
See, that's what we think. We think we have to fix these things. I do. I think this way myself. We have to fix these things. Instead, we ought to just let God work in our lives. And, and if things seem a little difficult or hot, well, what's God trying to teach us out of this? Depend on Him probably, right? Yeah. Well, then Daniel gave Belshazzar a history lesson. This is not what the king wanted. He wanted answers. Aren't you, aren't you kind of like that way? I am. I don't want a lesson here. I don't want an explanation. Give me the answer, right? Yeah. He gives him this long, convoluted history lesson. Verse 18, O king, most high God, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne, stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. And so they acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Daniel says, here's what happened to your grandfather. God humbled him in a great way, made him eat grass. For a king to eat grass, to live outside in all the elements when he could live in a palace, that's humbling. He even lost his mind for a while and wasn't himself. Daniel said that his, his grandfather did not acknowledge that the Most High God was even over him and his kingdom. That, that God himself was over the great and powerful but worldly Babylonian empire. This is a lesson that God teaches the world over and over and over again. Nations do this. We get, nations get big and wealthy and powerful and they begin to think they can do whatever they want to do. They can live however they want to live. God has shown himself to be powerful and sovereign over all kinds of kingdoms. All the Nebuchadnezzars of the world, the Genghis Khans of the world, the Hitlers of the world, kings and queens, even presidents. God has shown himself sovereign and powerful. No one is above God. Amen. Psalm 2, verse 4 and 5. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, these people who think they're godlike. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. This is the God we serve. He reminds us that we are not him. And that yes, we are his people. But we must follow him. We must obey him. Verse 22. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, you had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he set the hand that wrote this inscription. Wow. Daniel stood before the most powerful man on earth at that time, the most powerful man over the most powerful empire, a man who thought he had godlike powers and rebuked him to his face. Looked him right in the eye and said, you're not a god. And you have offended the one true living God, the God most high. Now he didn't do this to demean Belshazzar. He simply told him the truth. He said, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life 
and all your ways. Friends, that's you and I too. We're right there. God holds our lives in his hands. He holds our ways in his hands. And therefore, we must listen to him. Point number five, and we're almost done, folks. Hang in there. Keep that fan blowing. Keep that air moving. Daniel explained the writing on the wall was God's judgment. He said, this is God's judgment against you and your empire. Verse 25, this is the inscription that was written. And this is what the words mean. Men, a God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales, found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. God's warning became God's judgment. And this is the way God operates. He extends us grace. He extends us grace. He extends us grace. Then He warns us, and then His judgment comes. This is His way of working. This is the way He operates. He gives grace and grace and grace, but at some point, His grace runs out. And when His grace is rejected especially, He warns, and then He enacts His judgment. Listen to Ezekiel 7. Verses 1 to 4. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The land that he called the apple of his eye. The land that he called the most beautiful land. The end. The end has come upon the four ends of the land. The end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look with you on you with pity or spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and the detestable practices among you, then you will know that I am the Lord. That was to Israel, where, the, where Jerusalem was, where the temple was at, where they worshipped God, and where they blasphemed His name. From out throughout the whole land, what land is that, what country does that remind you of today? Kind of reminds me of America in many ways. We blaspheme God, and yet we spend money, it says, in God we trust. And we, we use that very money with that very saying, and we use it on all kinds of terrible things. All along, we have, and we're all along thinking God's going to take care of us. God's going to protect us. And since God does not change, at least I don't believe he does, he's going to do this again. He very well could do this to America. Now, I don't know that. I don't know that. And if he does decide to bring his judgment on the world, I don't know when it's going to happen. God has not fit, seen fit to tell me what day or an hour of, his, of his, his judgment. But all he's told me is this. He's told me to say this when I preach. And that is this. He, for now, his grace is available. For now, his grace is available to everyone. King and queen. Common people. Rich and poor. Black and white. Young or old. America or other nations of the earth. God's grace is still available to you. That's what I've been told for sure to say. And someday that grace is going to be withdrawn or run out. And then what will happen? Well, comes a warning and then comes judgment. And someday that's going to happen because the people of this world will know that the Lord is God. Amen? Amen. In Revelation 1, verse 7, is this warning. I believe this warning is for us today. has been for the church for 2,000-some years. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. Everybody will see Jesus Christ when he comes back. When God says, sound the trumpet, send my son, and he comes back, everybody in the world will see Jesus coming back. Even those, Revelation 7, 1, 7 says, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen.
There's our warning. Someday Jesus will come back when we don't know. We don't even know the, the year. We don't know the month or the day or the hour. Let me ask you, friends, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Have you put your eternal destiny in the hands of Jesus Christ? If you aren't ready, if you're not ready for that day yet, but you want to be, I want to encourage you to reach out and come forward this morning. Come to Christ today. Don't delay. Don't slow down. Keep coming. Come to Christ as we sing our song. Give Him your life. Put your eternal destiny in His righteous right hand. Let Him give you purpose and meaning in your life and eternal salvation with the Father. As we sing our invitation song, I surrender all. And you feel led by God to make some sort of commitment, whether that's to join the church, rededicate your life, get baptized, or maybe just make a prayer, a profession of faith. I'll be glad to help you do any of those things. So let's stand and pray and we'll get ready to sing. And let God speak as you sing. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and in your, in your presence and your spirit. We pray, Father, that as we sing this last song, that you will do that work that only you can do, that you'll speak to each person's heart where we're at with you right now at this time. Lord, give us that courage, that clear calling to follow you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.